All right, Exodus chapter 20. We are, man, we are done with the Ten Commandments. Are you happy? Man, them commandments were tough, weren't they? Conviction of sin is what God intended His commands to bring, and man, they are good at what they do. They're good at showing us our heart. As we walk through those Ten Commandments, we'll want to just remind you, um, we have a tendency to hear the command, see the breaking of the command in our heart or our life, and then try to justify ourselves by saying, well, it doesn't really apply. Make sure you don't do that. Make sure you don't do that. The commands, it says in Romans, were designed, the law is designed to stop the mouth from speaking and to push us to the Savior uh, to have our, our, our forgiveness. But tonight, now that we're done with the Ten Commandments, we're going to see the grace of God that is set right alongside the law as He gives it to Israel at Mount Sinai. So we said last week, as we were walking through the last two commandments, that salvation's always been by grace. It's never been by the law. And tonight we're going to see two aspects of God's grace that are given right alongside the law, right alongside the Ten Commandments. And these two things are often not really talked about much, but they come right after the giving of the law uh, in chapter 20 of, or in chapter 20 of Exodus. And the first aspect of grace that God gives along with His law is a mediator. We're going to see that in Moses. And the second aspect is a, a, an altar of sacrifice for when they break the law. And then in chapter 21, when we move into chapter 21, we're going to start with what's considered case law. So he takes the Ten Commandments and the law that is set before them in the Ten Commandments, and then starting in chapter 21, we just walk through some specific case law of what it looks like to obey this command, what it looks like in this scenario, what it looks like in this situation. So after the voice of God declares the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, you can imagine kind of what the people are feeling now. What would you be feeling? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go back and remember the setting, okay? So in verse 18, which is where we're going to start tonight in chapter 20, verse 17 was the last command. In verse 18, we begin after the Ten Commandments. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So here after the command... We're really, we spent a long time in the commands. If you were to just read chapter 19 and 20 straight through, what you'd find is we're told the same thing uh, as we see here in verse 18. We're told the same thing in chapter 19, verse 18. It talks about the thunder and the lightning and God's presence descending on the mountain and the people being afraid before he gave the Ten Commandments when God's presence was on the mountain. Why does he say it again? after the giving of the Ten Commandments. Remember, there was thunder, lightning, mountain, smoke. There was all this, and people were afraid. Why does he say it again? Huh? Was that somebody, or is that just all them kids out there? Was that what? Come on. Oh, it's the kids? All right. To make, yeah, absolutely. To make sure we get it, for sure, for sure. But I think that we're intended to understand 
that these awesome sights and sounds of God's presence, the thunder and the lightning and the smoke and all of this, I think we're intended to see that this continued the whole time as God was giving the Ten Commandments. So he descended on the mountain and they see this, this terrible storm, flashes of light, thunder, fire, all of the things that, that encapsulate God's presence, this theophany here on the mountain. And then the Ten Commandments are given in this terrifying voice from God to the people. And then as soon as the commandments are given, we're told again. Now, when they saw all of this, so I, I think that this, this spectacle of God's presence was ongoing while he was giving the commandments. Now, we took a long time in the commandments, so it's, it's hard for us to remember. But if you read straight through, I think that it shows us that this storm of God's presence on the mountain didn't cease as he spoke. It, it was going on at the whole time. And now, after the commandments are, are given, Moses is telling us how it affected the people to see this sight but also to hear these commandments. It says they were terrified. They were so terrified they were literally shaking. We were told that earlier in chapter 19. Why do you think they were so afraid? It's probably an easy question for you guys. They were guilty, for sure. I think that's one reason. One of the two reasons, I think. First, I mean, it's God's holy presence. I mean, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. This storm and darkness and lightning and the, the trumpet sound. Remember in chapter 19, it said the trumpet got louder and louder and louder. And I mean, this terrifying presence. And remember in chapter 19, God told them before he descended on the mountain, he said, Moses, you make sure you put boundaries around it because if anybody touches the mountain once I descend on it, they die. If an animal breaks loose and touches the mountain, it dies. Uh, and so it was already told them that it's a dangerous thing to come into the presence of God. And now after seeing the presence of God, after seeing this, this, this manifestation, this storm of the presence of God on the mountain, they understand the danger. And they didn't want to go anywhere near the mountain, did they? They rightly understood it's dangerous to come into the presence of God. But I think, Travis, you're right, that they also understood and were afraid because now they had been given the law. See, back in chapter 19, remember, God told Moses, you tell them I'm coming and you tell them I'm going to be in covenant with them and I'm going to, if they will keep my commands and do my statutes, I'll be God to them forever. And what did the people say? They said, yeah, we'll do that. We'll, we, we agree. We'll keep all that you said. He hadn't told them what the commands are, but they said, yeah, we'll agree. And now he's told them they understand these commands are, are he, he, is, uh, he is giving us commands for every aspect of life, including our hearts. We've already promised to keep covenant with this terrifying God and obey his commands before they even knew what they were. And now you can only imagine the fear in them as they realize God's commands. They're, they're directing every part of our lives, even our hearts, even our coveting, even our, our thoughts. And this terrifying presence before them assured them that judgment would come if they were unable to keep these laws. God had just given them the commandments. And honestly, they hadn't even had time to break them yet. But they knew their hearts. And they knew their past actions. We've walked through Exodus and we've seen them grumbling the whole time. We've seen them grumbling and whining and wanting to go back to Egypt the whole time. 
They had to be terrified knowing that one slip up and this terrifying presence before me is going to rain down judgment upon me. I can't even touch the mountain that he's on because he's so holy. And now he's given me a law that I'm not sure I can keep. And he's, uh, it's just terrifying. If simply hearing the law in God's presence was terrifying, imagine what it would be like to stand before God after breaking the law. So how do they respond to Moses? It's all you, buddy. You know, they say, we, we, we don't want to talk to God anymore. Thank you very much. When the fullness of God's law is revealed and the terror of His presence is there, Israel finally realizes they need a mediator. They want somebody else to stand between them and God. Our God is a consuming fire. They couldn't even bear the sound of God's voice. Do you see it? You speak to us and listen, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us. They couldn't even... I often wonder what it sounded like, because this is... You know, from this point on, God is not going to speak to Israel. He's going to speak to Moses to speak to Israel. But here, God is speaking to the people from the mountain. I often wonder what His voice sounded like. I mean, it says that it sounded like thunder to the people. I mean, just, it had to have been terrifying, terrifying. They couldn't even bear the sound of his voice. Now, there's a lot of people today, they, they will say things that are just so stupid. You know, like, well, I know that I'm not right or anything, but when I stand before God, I'm just going to bebop into his presence and tell him what's up, you know, and, or... Or I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to make my case. I'm going to explain my case to him. And I'm going to ask him, why you didn't show me what I needed to see? You know? uh, or, 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 or some people will say, you know, like, like, like Job was faithful. We walked through the book of Job here on Wednesday nights and Job was faithful. But there came a point about the middle of the book where Job shifts and he starts saying, I want God to come hear my case. I want God to come and to tell me what I did wrong. I want God to come and, be, and God shows up. And what, is, what does Job do? I'm sorry. God said, who, who are you? Who you think you are? Where were you when I created the birds? Where were you? You know, some people say, if God would just show himself, I might, I might believe. You know, I might give him a shot. No, you need to understand, it'd be easier for you to stand on the face of the sun than to stand before the holy presence of God. And, and his power, his holiness, it's just beyond explanation. Our God is a consuming fire. And Israel here didn't even see um, the, the, tr the trueness, is that a word? It's a word now. The trueness of God. They saw a manifestation of a storm and, and those things. Even Moses, you know, God said, I, I can't let you see my glory. I'll show you my hind parts, you know. I'll pass by you and show you. I mean, it, it, it is, it is it's, it's beyond explanation. It's just awe-inspiring. And God is not going to speak to his people again except through Moses. Later, as Moses looks back at this incident, um, he's going to say to the people in Deuteronomy 5.5, 5, he says, while I stood, look what he did. Moses said, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you are afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. You see how he describes it? I stood between you and the Lord. He is the mediator. He is functioning as the mediator to stand between the Lord and the people. And so as mediator, Moses counsels the people before God in verse 20. So 
We don't want to talk to God. We'll talk to you. You go talk to God and tell us what he says. And Moses said to the people, they're terrified. He said, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So Moses is functioning as the mediator, explaining the commands of God, explaining the presence of God, explaining why this is happening and what they need to do. He told them not to be afraid, for God did not come to destroy them, but to test them and to prove them. And this proving, this testing, was so that the fear of the Lord would be before them and they would not sin. Now, does that sound strange to you? When you read verse 20, are you picking up on the weirdness of that? Moses says, don't be afraid. God's here to put the fear of the Lord in you. (laughs) That's kind of strange, isn't it? Don't be afraid. Oh, by the way, fear of the Lord. So what does he mean, do you think? What is the fear of the Lord in Scripture? Respect, honor, awe. There is an element of fear there as fearing judgment, fearing God's power, but it's not a dread. It's not a terror. It's not a, it's not a, a sinful fear. It's not a, a prideful fear. Or a, He's saying, don't be, don't be terrified. Don't be terrified. God is here to prove you, and He is here to show His power to you so that you would fear the Lord and not sin. There is such a thing as a healthy fear of the Lord. The Bible says fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Bible says that there's, there's, uh, for the wicked, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 19.9 says that the fear of the Lord is clean and endures forever. For his people, there need not be this dread, this terror, this, this, this dumping you off into this paralyzing fear. But the fear of the Lord in Scripture is different from that. It's a It's a healthy understanding of his power, majesty, his glory. It's a reverent awe and acknowledgement of his righteous power and his righteous judgment. It is a fear in the sense of we we reverently fear the power of our God and we walk in order to abstain from sin because of the fear of the Lord, but it's not a sinful or a dread or a terror or uh, any of those things. And he's saying... Don't be afraid in the way that you are being afraid right now. They're trembling. They're literally shaking. They're so scared. He's saying, don't be afraid. God has come and shown you his power, shown you his majesty, shown you this this great and awesome sight of his presence to test you, to show you his omnipotence, his greatness, his majesty, so that the fear of him, the awe of him, the glory of him may be before you so that you will not sin so that you will understand that his commandments are true and binding. Moses is acting as a mediator here. He's speaking for God to the people, telling them how to respond to God in this moment. And then Moses does the other function of a mediator. He goes before God for the people. In verse 21, he said, The people stood far off. Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, there's a lot of people that use this verse to say that, you know, God is in the darkness of your life. Even in the darkness uh, of the things you're going through, you'll find him. I mean, that's true. You can get that from a lot of different passages in Scripture. God is with us in our 
times of darkness, times of trial, times of whatever. But that's not what this verse means. The darkness here is the presence of God. The, the thunder, the lightning, the cloud, the smoke, all of that, that is the presence of God. And the people didn't go in there. They stayed as far away from that as they possibly could. It was Moses, the mediator, who went in there before the Almighty God on behalf of his people. This verse is, is uh, it begins a scene that's not going to change until chapter 24 where Moses is on the mountain hearing the voice of God, hearing the voice of the Lord. But what a picture of Christ that is. Do you see it? Moses is their mediator. God has allowed them to have a mediator because they're terrified and they're sinful and they can't come into his presence. And Jesus Christ is our mediator. He's the greater Moses, the true mediator who goes where Moses himself could not go, behind the veil, and does what Moses himself cannot do. He offers perfect obedience to the law of God, offers perfect sacrifice for the sins of his people. And it's shown by the writer of Hebrews. As believers in Jesus Christ, the writer of Hebrews writes this. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice uh, whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. We saw that back in chapter 19. He says, Christian... You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. They're celebrating. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You remember what Abel's blood cried out to God? God said, "Your blood, his blood's crying out to me for vengeance. He says, Jesus' blood cries out in salvation, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Our mediator secures our place in the covenant of God forever. And so the first grace God gives to Israel, along with the terror of the law, is he gives a mediator to stand in between the sinner and God, to go before God on behalf of the sinners and speak to God for them, represent God to them, and represent the people to God, to stand between them, as it were, and bridge the gap. And Moses doesn't do this perfectly, as we'll see as we walk through Exodus, but he is a type of what Jesus would come to do perfectly, completely, canceling out the debt that we owe, nailing it to the cross. Questions, comments? You see that mediator they give as a grace? Well, the next grace that we see that is given is the altar and sacrifice. But the first thing God does is he restates the command against idolatry. He's talking to Moses here as Moses has entered into the darkness He says, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me or be before me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. What is he referencing? Huh? 
Well, yeah, he is. He is. They needed to be retold because we're going to see that they do just that here. In, uh, well, it's going to be several chapters, but in the timeline of what's happening, it's not too long from now where they actually do this. He's referencing what they're about to do for sure, but he's also referencing that second commandment. You're not to make any graven images of me. Now, now from this point on, he's going to speak just to Moses, and Moses is going to speak to the people. Um, but he tells them that you've seen me that I've spoken, and therefore don't make idols. Does that also sound strange? Did you pick up on that when you read it? He says, you saw me by hearing me. You see it? You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You saw me by hearing me. And therefore, don't make idols. So you know me, he's saying, and you saw my presence by the word that I have given you. There was no image before you when I gave you the words of the covenant. There was no image before you. There was a storm, there was lightning, there was a, the, this, this manifestation of his presence, but there was no image there. There was nothing. All you had was this voice from heaven that come down and was speaking the commands. And he says, and therefore, you are not to make any images. You are not to make any images of gold. You're not to make any images of silver. And there are some people that take this reference to the command against idolatry as being uh, a summary of all of the commandments because as we've seen as we walk through them, all sin is idolatry of some, some form, some level. And so he says, before he tells them about the grace that he's given to them, he tells them, you've seen me because you've heard me. I will present myself to you by the word that I've spoken. And so don't make any idols. And then he tells them what they are to make. Okay, don't make any idols, but you are going to make this. He says, an altar of earth you shall make for me. And sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. We'll stop there a second. We'll read 25 in a moment. God provided them an altar to make sacrifices on, a grace to them for when they broke the law. He provided a way for them to make sacrifice to cover their sin. He tells them, you're going to make an altar. Don't make images of me, but you make an altar, a place where justice can fall on a substitute for your sin. Now, later in the sacrificial system through Numbers Leviticus, we're going to see all kinds of different, uh, there was five basic sacrifices, but there are several different kinds of sacrifices that are going to be prescribed for all kinds of different things. Here he only gives two, and in, in my opinion, they're, they're the two most important. The burnt offering was intended, as we'll see in Leviticus, it was intended to cover sin. It was a whole burnt offering offered to the Lord to cover sin. And a peace offering was... Um, uh, I, think, I think a peace offering is the same as a grain offering. I may be wrong about that, so don't, don't take that to be gospel. But the peace offering were given in thanksgiving before God for special requests, for special blessings that are asked for, things like that. So he gives these two main kinds of offering. Do you see what happened here? God already knew in the giving of his commandments that they're going to disobey them. 
He already knew that they're not going to keep covenant with him. He knew the hearts of his people. We've been reading the text and we know the hearts of the people. They've grumbled and complained the whole time. And so he gives them, I mean, the moment he gives the last commandment, these are the ten words, the Decalogue, these are the commands, these are the covenant stipulations. And the, the next words he gives is the grace of a mediator and the grace of an altar with sacrifice for when you break those commandments. He gave them a, the grace of an altar that they could have atonement, that they could have forgiveness for their sin. And of course, we know this altar, the sacrifice points to Jesus. Now, I hate it when people ask trick questions to make me look stupid. So I'm not going to do that to you. I'm going to tell you beforehand, this is a trick question. Okay, do we have an altar today? Yes, we have an altar today. And what is our altar? Our heart is our, our heart is our altar in a sense. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our altar. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is bought, brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify his people through his own blood. He's our altar. He's our sacrifice. And so as Christians, do we still offer sacrifices to God today? Also a trick question. Be careful. Yes. Yes. The prayers? What else? Huh? Praise. Yes. Now, are those sacrifices atoning for sin? No. The sacrifice that atones for sin is Jesus. But you're right. The writer of Hebrews also says, through him then, through him, through his once for all sacrifice, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And in Romans 12, what does it say? Let us offer our bodies as living, not dead sacrifices, not burnt sacrifices, not sacrifices that are killed on the altar, but living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God because the one true sacrifice has made us holy and pleasing to God. What a grace God has given his people right after giving the law. In the midst of the storm, in the midst of the terror of, that the law instilled in these people who are standing before this massive display of power, he gives them grace. He gives them, he allows them to have a mediator to go before them, before God, so they don't have to go in. He gives them an altar uh, and a way to sacrifice for when they do break the law. But we also have to remember, and they had to remember, that God's demand, God demands that we worship Him. And that's what's happening here with the altar, the sacrifice, the, all of those things. We worship Him in the way that He says we must worship Him. You can't come any way you please with any kind of altar that you please, with any kind of sacrifice that you please. Last two verses we'll read tonight. He says... He told us, an altar of earth you shall make, and you shall bring your sacrifices in every place. My name is remembered. I will come to bless you, meaning that is the place where I will meet with you, the altar of sacrifice. And 
He says in verse 25, If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for it will wield, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed upon it. Strange verses. All right. Now, altars had been used by God since the days of Abraham. You know, we're told Abraham built altars in his travels, and Isaac and Jacob and all of them built altars. Altars are not a new thing. But why not from cut stones? What do you think? There's several different theories. Why, what do you think? Why not? He says, don't make, if you make an altar from stones, why not from hewn stones, meaning shaped stones? Don't put any tool on the stones is what he's saying. God created them. Yeah. And they're perfect just the way they are. For sure. For sure. Sorry. Pride. Yeah, okay. Yeah. My stone is way prettier than your stone. What kind of stone you I think that, that I think that that's true. I think that I think that God is telling them, listen, this altar, he he tells them to make it of earth. And right now in, in this time, you know, there's people there we've talked about the Egyptian religion and all of the, you know, all the gaudy gods and gold things and all that stuff. And in the Canaanite lands and pagan lands before Israel even got there, they were, they were doing all the same thing, making big ornate altars and big, big, huge demonstrations of, of all kind of debauchery and their worship and all these things. And he's telling them the altar that you make for me is just going to be made out of earth. And if you make it out of stones, you don't put your artistic stamp on it. You don't, this is, it is to be simple, it is to be of the earth, it is to be of the things God created, and it is to be all glory to God and not in the altar itself. It's not to be ornate, it's not to be with gold and silver, it's not to be with any of those things, it's not even to be fashioned by you in any way, shape, or form. This is not your doing. You are not making an altar so to please me. I am giving you an altar so that you can please me. And so this was to be God's altar. And so they must make it where there would be no mistaking that glory belonged to God alone. There was no glory in this altar per se. They couldn't put a tool on the stones that were used because it's not by man's hands that God is appeased. It is God's grace that gives sacrifice and worship. Yes, Lyle. They did. They did. So Alal's question is, the temple had all kind of ornate designs. In fact, even before that, the tabernacle had all kind of patterns woven in the, in the same, yep. The ark as well, ark as well. Uh, and so what changed? I don't know. God gave them instructions on how to build it and what to build and all those things. Um, but at this point, at this point, they're going to, I mean, God knows they're going to wander in the wilderness, so, but they don't know it at this time. They're going into the land of Canaan, and they're not going to be, uh, well, that doesn't make sense either because they have the tabernacle. They're building the tabernacle. That's a good question. I wasn't prepared to answer that, so I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But at this point, he says, no hewn stones and don't put a single tool on it or you'll profane it. 
Anybody have an idea? Like I said, I ain't the Bible answer, man. You tell me what you think. Why? Why such intricate... In fact, in the tabernacle, am I thinking right? Like Bezazel and all those guys were artists and gold workers and all them things. I mean, there were a lot of artistry went into the tabernacle and the temple. Yeah, Greg? Oh, that, that might be a good point. I have to research it. He said, I wonder if the temple was built to God's specifications, so we know that it was God's will, and, but maybe the altar was not big and, and gaudy and those kind of things. Maybe it was, was it? Was it? I don't, I, you're talking about things I can't say off the top of my head. Pam? Yeah. That's true. She said that the altar was the place where salvation was pictured, prefigured, and it had nothing to do with man, it was God. But the tabernacle, as we get into the tabernacle, we're going to see they were... They were instructed to do little, you know, ornate flowers and all kind of things because it is, it is a picture of the first temple, Eden, the first. Uh, so, yeah, that's true. Uh, Amanda, did you want to say something? That's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. She said the altar more represents Christ and just having it plain, simple, not ornate may prefigure the fact that Christ was, by all accounts in Scripture, ordinary. I mean, from the outside, ordinary. God incarnate, of course, but you know what I mean when I say that. He wasn't like human king or anything like that. Interesting, interesting. Yes. The first time we see an altar, is it Abraham? Noah. Noah, yeah, okay, yeah. And then Abraham, well, you had uh, Abraham and you had Jacob and you had uh, all these different people. Every time it's, a, it's not always, it's just where they're at. Yeah, they, they plant one wherever they're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So John said that all of the altars from Noah all the way up through Abraham and his children, Jacob, and were all just regular old rock altars or dirt altars, or just very simple. Um, but it also could be that God was distinguishing his people from all of the people around. He was distinguished because like the Canaanite altars were up in high places and very ornate, very, and Egyptian altars, we saw, we talked about that when they were in Egypt, how they were all, in fact, this golden bull that their golden calf that they're going to make um, was probably something they learned in Egypt. Uh, and so all of that, all of that plays into it. Um, yeah?
Well, we're not told. They didn't butcher the animals. God butchered the animals. Hmm. I, I don't know. I'd have to look. I'd have to look back at the text. I'm not sure. You may be right. She said that there was altars way back in Cain and Abel. They brought. He brought. You know, Abel brought lamb. You know, the flock, and Cain brought his produce. So I'd have to check on that. Now, see, we're getting we're getting somewhere now. You got stuff I don't even know about. That makes it fun. All right, so. Verse 26, this one's, this one's great too. No steps on the altar. And the reason, so your nakedness is not exposed. So this is the way I take it, and this is just, <laughs> good luck. Uh, all of the Canaanite altars, the places where they worship their gods, all, they were all in high places. In fact, you'll see Israel get sucked into worshiping at high, in the high places, it's called in Scripture over and over again. It couldn't be elevated or have steps. Um, I, the best way to say this is at this time in history, people didn't wear underwear. So climbing up a high place would let their nakedness, could have their nakedness be exposed. And this was something the pagans did. So without going into crazy detail, a lot of pagan worship and worshiping their gods was centered on sexual activity and nudity and all of this lewd behavior and stuff that is completely unacceptable to God. Uh, he's saying you must prepare yourself to worship him rightly. In fact, in the days of the temple, when there were steps going up into the temple and going up to the altar, the priests were required to wear linen breeches to cover under their, under their robes. Uh, so that's what the majority interpretation of so that your nakedness would not be exposed on it. Thoughts? Just keep your thoughts PG. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. So, understanding this is just a rudimentary, in my, in my, my opinion, which is just an opinion, and if I, I'll take correction if, if someone can show me better. Uh, my opinion is God was giving them just the core kernel of worship and sacrifice until a later time when... God's going to be with them and uh, until a later time when the tabernacle was to be built and the priesthood would be established and all of those other things would come. But right now, they just have the basic tenets of the law, the ten words, and they're given the basic fundamentals of the worship of, of, the worship of Yahweh and how sacrifice plays into that, how the altar is to look and those kind of things. And we see as they grow as a nation and they grow in, uh, in the worship of God and what God requires, there's going to be different things added to this, i.e. the tabernacle, the altar, the, all, all the things that we're going to see through Exodus. Questions, comments? So God gave them the law terrified them with his presence, but at the same time, he also gave them grace in providing, number one, a mediator for them and providing an altar by which they could make sacrifices when they broke the law. When the law was breached, a sacrifice would be a substitute to them. 
And God alone, in these last few verses, demonstrates, determines how, how He is to be worshipped, how His people must worship Him. And honestly, today, it's no different. We can only come to God through the mediator that He has given us, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God and man. And we can only come to God through the sacrifice that He Himself has made for us, that sacrifice of His mediator. And today, as believers worshiping God in the new covenant, we are to come to Him and worship in just the simple, unadorned acts of singing and praying and the praise of our lips, the preaching of His Word, the ordinances that He has given the church, and there's none of the things that we do that are ever to be for show or for performance or to be adorned with the pride or the accomplishments of man. It is to be focused on God, understanding that these are just simple acts of sacrifice, not atoning sacrifice, but sacrifice that we give to God in worship and thanksgiving for the sacrifice that He has given to us. Uh, and all the things that we do, the singing, the praising, the praying, the preaching, the gathering of the church, the worship, the, all of these things are founded on the mediator that we have, the one sacrifice that we have, and the one altar at which we worship, which is Jesus Christ. Praise God. Any questions, comments? Yes. I agree. She said, I think there's a danger in making our worship a show. You want to elaborate, or do you want me to? I think it's Are you talking about us here? Oh, really? Wow. Well, she said that she's heard some comments from people that it's just a show here in our worship. So I don't know. I know that being part of the praise team, I know it's not a show for us. So we pray beforehand. We, we do devotions at our practices. We, do, um, we, we ask God to be with us. And I miss notes on the bass all the time because I'm worshiping and not paying attention to my music. Uh, so if, yeah, yeah, I, I would, I, I, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that at all. Anybody else? Okay, let's pray. Father, we do love you and we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for, God, just the blessing of, just the blessing of your Son. God, we pray that you would help us to, that you would help us to not, um, to not do anything to bolster our own pride or our own egos or our own uh, desires. God, I pray that you would um, that you would just be present in all of our worship services, that you'd be present in the preaching of your word. God, if, if, if I've ever come across as I'm preaching for just show, God, uh, I just pray that you would show that to me because that's, that's a heinous sin. That is idolatry. It is blasphemy, God. And if I have done that in the preaching of your word and shown myself to be making a show of things, God, I pray that you would forgive me and that you would show that to my heart. God, help us to be a church that honors you above all things. Help us to be a church that, that preaches your gospel, 
and sings of your love and your gospel and your truth uh, and leads uh, one another in discipleship and worship. God, we do thank you for the grace of salvation and we thank you for who you are. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.